So you turn to Genesis, and now we're at chapter 9. We finished at chapter 9, verse 17 last time, and now it's going to be Genesis chapter 9, starting at verse 18. And of course, the context, most of you know, but just the context is the uh, flood has come, the water's gone, they've left the boat, the eight adults and all of the animals and birds and uh, everything that was on the boat has gone out of the boat. And, uh, and so we're starting at verse 18 in Genesis chapter 9, and it reads this way. The sons of Noah, who came out of the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And by the way, they had wives. And I'm, I like, there's so, much, there's so many things you can count as you go through Genesis. So I like to count them. We had in the boat, we had Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we had Noah's wife, Shem's wife, Ham's wife, and Japheth's wife. So we had eight people. But then it says, if you look at it, Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, if this was a movie, the music would get very weird right now because the word Canaan would not be a pleasant word to think about. Uh, Noah was, as we've seen, a righteous man except for one particular mishap. Spurgeon said, God never allows his children to sin successfully. There's always a price to pay. So now look at verse 19. These were the three sons of Noah... And from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth, which was a command of God, but it hadn't uh, happened until we'll see what actually happened. In verse, chapter 10, we're going to see where the people were all over the earth. In chapter 11, we'll see how they got there. And so in verse 19, these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, a farmer, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And then he drank some of its wine. He became drunk and lay uncovered, naked, inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan. Remember, we already saw that Ham was the father of Canaan. So Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Now, first thing, it has been suggested that this is a picture of Ham having sexual relations of some kind with his father. This is definitely not true. The Hebrew is clear that the problem was Ham seeing his father naked and not respecting him by helping him in his naked, drunken state. This is a picture of Ham's life rather than just a misstep of his father who Ham did not respect. When Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately covered up their nakedness. So Ham had seen his dad naked and drunk and should have covered his nakedness and helped his father recover. Now, keep in mind, Ham was 100 years old, maybe a little more than that. And he had observed the righteousness of his dad all his life. His dad had been righteous for hundreds of years. Reading the full story, it would be reasonable, I believe, to assume Ham was less than committed to the righteous example of his dad. Noah knew 
what would happen if he drank too much wine. And this one time he became drunk and fell down in his tent, probably letting his robe slip off, exposing his nakedness. It seems Ham was somewhat delighted that his father made this mistake and thought his brothers would also be the same. So rather than help his dad, Ham exposed the sin of his dad to his brothers. Now, clearly, they thought differently about respecting their father and saved him from terrible embarrassment while covering up his nakedness and respectively taking care of him. Look at verse 23. But Shem and Japheth, remember Shem, Ham, and Japheth, took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. They had not seen their father naked. And then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. Now, one commentator who I really like uh, is kind of a little bit humorous here, but not really. He said, it's a good thing that we all have livers. Livers? Yes, it's the, I'm told now. I'm not a doctor yet, uh, <laughs> nor will I ever be. I'm told it's the second largest organ in the body. Is that right? compared to the skin, which is the largest. And one of the things that the liver does is it takes away the alcohol. And so then we could read verse 24, when the liver had done its job and Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Now that kind of surprises us. Canaan didn't do anything. Well, here's the situation. God himself had blessed Noah's three sons, three boys. So the curse here goes toward the ancestry to come through Ham's son, Canaan. And most of you are Bible readers, and so you have read through the Old Testament thoroughly, and you know the Canaanites became enemies of Israel, and eventually God eliminated the Canaanite land from history. Uh, the Canaanites were a very immoral, idol-worshiping people. They even sacrificed some of their children by fire to appease the idol or small g-god Moloch. Nevertheless, regardless of how degraded a culture, it is still possible for God's grace to save. A good example, Rahab... The prostitute was a Canaanite, a woman and a Canaanite, who was saved through her faith. Now, we've spent a lot of time in Hebrews chapter 11 as we've been studying through Genesis. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it reads, It was by faith that Rahab, this was in the time of Joshua, the prostitute was not destroyed with the people of her city who refused to obey God. And then even more than that, then Rahab was Boaz's mother. Boaz married Ruth, you remember that? And is mentioned in the ancestry of the Messiah, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1. So nobody is beyond God's grace. And then it goes on, cursed be Canaan. But then in, uh, still in verse 25, it says that he would become the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now, I tried to do as much of a study as this word I could. 
uh, it would be better. Even the, we can go back to the King James Version of the Bible. Even that version says the lowest of servants. And uh, in some of the more modern translations, uh, they will say the lowest of those who are of, of servanthood. So the, the, the curse is the lowest of slaves will he be, Canaan, to his brothers. And he's all, he also said, verse 26, praise be to the Lord. This is Noah speaking, the only time in the Bible that he speaks. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem, that's the youngest. May Canaan be the, and I'm going to say servant on purpose, the servant of Shem. And may God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents, that was Japheth was the firstborn, of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave also or the servant also of Japheth. So the, the Canaan has been relegated uh, to be uh, a lower-class servant, a help to these others. Now, it probably deserves a full sermon. But by misreading this passage, or not reading it at all, the idea of black slavery was born. We know enough about the Canaanites to know they were not black. Nevertheless, history has a sad past regarding black slavery, as we all know. These verses were actually used by secularists to justify various forms of slavery and racism. Some said the curse of Ham, which doesn't exist, proved blacks were inferior. But a simple reading of the scriptures makes it clear there was no curse of ham and skin color had nothing to do with any of this. Darwin's book, Origin of the Species, was used to prove black people were not as evolved as other races. As a matter of fact, the original uh, cover of the book, which I put on the screen here, reads, On the Origin of Species by means of natural selection, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. There were even school books in, in, in the early 1900s, one particular one in 1914 the, in America, that made the case for the inferiority of black people, supposedly proving that black people were inferior to other races, even though... In America, the Constitution says that all people were created equal, which is true, equal and in the image of God, by the way, and skin color has nothing to do with equality. Before God, we are all equal, whether saved or unsaved, and salvation is for everyone, regardless of ethnicity or gender or status, and most of us have memorized the verse by now, Galatians 3.28 where Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, doesn't make any difference, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if people knew the Bible, they would know that there are no races biblically. We are all equal in Jesus, and we don't evolve but we're created in the image of God. And there is no possibility that any kind of racism can be justified biblically.
here's a book recommendation. That if you're interested in this subject and you really wanted to explore it, Ken Ham, along with a man by the name of Charles Ware, wrote a book called One Race, One Blood. This is a revised and updated one, which you can buy easily. And it says, The Biblical Answer to Racism. And it would be worth your while, if you have the time, uh, to read that book. Well, then the last verse of this chapter reads, verse 28 and 29, that's two verses, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. And we already had a whole thing where we talked about, and he died, and he died, and he died. We all die. Now, I've called the sermon a family legacy. And the reason I have is because of chapter 10. So I've written in the, in, even in my Bible at home, uh, chapter 10, a family legacy. So chapter 10 is a report of the fulfillment of chapter 9, verse 1, which we've already studied. Genesis 9, 1, it reads, Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That was the command of God. But it seems that even Noah and his sons were not obeying God and spreading out around the earth. They had decided to settle down, stay where they were to satisfy themselves. We see this in the book of Acts. The church became localized, and uh, there had to be persecution, especially the stoning of Stephen, which the apostle Paul was delighted with, before the comfortable Christians would start to obey Jesus' great commission and travel to the ends of the earth. So Genesis chapter 10 starts out this way. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. Now Noah had 16 grandsons, who made up different people groups around the world, and chapter 11 will tell us how this all came about. The knowledge we have of the following lists of names comes from our Bibles, notably uh, first from 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 4 to 23, and there are other sources proving this chapter was considered historical. There was a time in the past when some scholars thought this list proved the Bible inaccurate. But as usual, especially through archaeology, there is no doubt that these peoples all existed. The Hittites are just one example. It was believed there were no such people, and then large amounts of archaeological evidence found in Egypt proved otherwise. Also, you will notice that the genealogies are patriarchal. Mums and daughters are not mentioned. And this really bothers some in our PC culture today. It's not Pastor Carl. <laughs> but that is the way God set up the human race. Dads are to be the dominant example to their kids and the protector and lover and security of their wives, especially in Ephesians chapter 5. I think that it's laid out there better than any place else in the Bible what a family is actually to look like. Now look at verse 2. The sons of Japheth. The sons of Japheth. Uh, there are seven of them. 
Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, remember that name, that's important, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. I really like Tyrus. I think that's a neat name. Verse 3, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, you've heard of the Ashkenazi Jews, uh, Riphath, and Togrima. Now, Javan was the beginning of Greek culture. Verse 4 and 5, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, then it goes from just a, a person to a people, the Kittites and the Rhodonites. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territory by their clans within their nations, each with his own language. And we'll find out why that happened in a moment. Now, uh, there are 7,000 languages in the world today, at least according to some of the research I did, it goes from 6,800 to 7,200 languages in the world today. Uh, language is incredibly important. That's how we communicate, of course. God made us people of language. But wherever Christianity reaches and translates the Bible into a local language, all areas of their lives improve. If you're really into missions, you hear all the time about missionaries going out learning the heart language of the people. And that way we can communicate. So uh, some of our missionaries even spend several years learning very difficult and different languages so that they can speak heart to heart to, uh, to the other people. Now, verse 6 are the sons of Ham. And their names are Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush now are Seba, that's southern Egypt, Havilah, northern and eastern Arabia on the Persian Gulf, Sabta, west shore of the Persian Gulf, and Rama and Sebekta. The descendants of Cush settled in South Arabia and in present-day southern Egypt, Sudan, and northern Ethiopia. The sons of Rama, now you'll want to write some of these down because if some of you are going to have children, you'll have some names to choose from. <laughs> Sheba and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod. Now this is an important name. Who became a mighty warrior on the earth. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Tradition tells us that Nimrod means to rebel. The phrase, before the Lord, more likely means that Nimrod saw himself as before or more important than the Lord. Even John Calvin had something to say about this. He says, before the Lord seems to me to declare that Nimrod attempted to raise himself above the order of men. Just as proud men become transported by a vain self-confidence that they may look down as from the clouds upon others. Now look at verse 10. The first centers of Nimrod's kingdom were Babylon. Now we all know about Babylon. Uruk, Ahad, and Kelna in Shinar. Shinar is just simply another name for Babylon. And then verse 11, from that land, he, Nimrod, went to Assyria. Now, we know about Assyria, and Assyria took out uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and all of that type of thing. 
But uh, from that land, he went to Assyria where he built Nineveh. Now, we all know about Nineveh because that's where there's a big fish, or at least there was a big fish that spit out a guy named Jonah who hated the Ninevites. They were a terrible people, but they then turned to God. Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, verse 12, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. So Nimrod became a symbol of the powerful empires that would destroy Israel and punish Judah. Now look at verse 13. Egypt was the father of the Ludites, Anamites, Lehabites, Naphtahites, Pathrasites, Kashlahites, from whom the Philistines came, that's Gaza, uh, the people of Gaza that we see today. That's where they come from, at least in that kind of genealogy. And the Kaphtarites. Now, the list here from verse 15 to 19 reads like a most wanted list of Israel's chronic enemies. Verse 15, Canaan, there he is again, was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites. Verse 16, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. I love this quote from Kent Hughes. <laughs> he writes, The descendants of Canaan, listed in verse 17, sounds to our ears like an entomologist's list of something for the pest controller. Hivites, Archites, Sinites, and Termites. <laughs> So verse 18 still, later the Canaanite clan scattered and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar as far as Gaza and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, we know, well, we know about them pretty well, Adma and Zeboim as far as Lasha, and these are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. And verse 21 says, Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth, and Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Now, Eber is an important uh, name to remember. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, that's Assyria, Arphaxad, Lud, that's now at least partially of Turkey, and Aram. These are the Semitic peoples out of whom Israel comes and to whom Je Jesus comes as Messiah. You won't find Israel in this list because we're, we are to see, first to see what happens when people spread out over the earth. As these populations prosper, we see people craving personal power by separating and doubting God's goodness and provision. Look at verse 23 now. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Meshach, verse 24, Arphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber, or Eber. That's the word I told you to remember. Eber is the ancestor of the Hebrew people. We read Abraham, or Abram, it reads actually at that point, the Hebrew. He descended from Eber through Peleg, and it is through Abram, who became Abraham, that the blessing of Noah prophesied on Shem is realized. And we'll see that next time.
time. Now look at verse 25. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg. Now this is really important because in his time the earth was divided. So in his time the earth was divided. That's where Babel comes from. You'll see that in a minute. His brother was named Joktan. Now I really have practiced all these names, but we're going to skip down uh, to verse 32. So there's all these other names that just go through here. And then in verse 32, it says, These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. And from these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So this list traces people groups from around the world as the earth was being quickly populated. But for the ethnologists, that is those who study ethnic groups, this is an amazing list purposely constructed with careful symmetry to send a message of importance. Seventy nations came from Noah's sons. Seventy is to represent all the nations on earth at the time of this writing. You also can notice in close study of this chapter that the languages and nations are political in description. These are political entities that impact history. So let's come to the New Testament for a minute. Acts chapter 17. It's a great chapter, and it makes it clear that God places nations and peoples for a purpose. So Acts 17, starting at verse 26. Here's, uh, it's the Apostle Paul. From one man, one man, he, God, created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand, God did, when they should rise and fall, and God determined their boundaries. We didn't determine the boundaries. God determined the boundaries. I know we look out today at what's going on in the world, and God has already decided whether, uh, whether Russia is going to take over Ukraine. He's already decided that. God decided. We don't decide that. We think we do, and we have all kinds of people that think that they can make all these things happen, but God is totally in control of anything. That's why I like studying Genesis. We learned that right from the very beginning in the seven-day creation uh, the, God controls everything. We can't even, in some ways, imagine it. But it's true. His purpose, God's purpose, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, Paul writes. For in him, in God, we live and move and exist. And as some of your own poets, he's talking to the uh, Athenians in Athens, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So even when it comes to creation, to the one spreading of nations, we're all one. Chapter, I don't remember where I got this quote, but I like it. Chapter 10 declares the interrelatedness of all peoples. We all have the same ancestry. We all, uh, I like the way this is written. We all are red and yellow. We all, red and yellow, black and white, and pink and beige. 
And piebald, I had to look it up. The piebald is somebody that sort of has spots, the different colors. Uh, we all share the dual paternity of Adam and Noah. Our DNA comes from the same source. I think that's important to realize. Even the choosing of Israel is a case in point. God chose Israel, a small nation, to show his love and saving power to all the world. We read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 7 in the writings of Moses. And he says, for you are a holy people, the Israelites, who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you are the smallest of all nations. And here we are even today arguing about Israel in the land and all that's going on as we look at our news night after night. So back to Acts 17 where Paul points out that all humans, regardless of ethnicity or ancestry, are created by God and responsible to God, to Elohim, the creator God. Paul was calling the Athenians, by the way, they were the idol-worshipping Athenians, from Athens, to turn from their idols and worship the one true God. They had an inscription on one of their altars that said, to an unknown God, and Paul pointed that out, and told them by referring to creation who God really is. We read it in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. Paul had the same problem when, then as we do today in our postmodern culture. They had many gods, many idols, many ways to a possible eternity according to their concept of God. In Acts 4.17, we read, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. And we know that name is Jesus. Acts 17 is a great model for us to learn how to bridge the gap between what the world believes and what the Bible says. And Genesis gives us the narrative, the story that we need to explain to people what life is all about. So how important is Genesis? Even Paul pointed to the creation along with the cross and the resurrection when presenting the gospel. Creation shows that there is no excuse for anyone to deny God. We learned that in the very beginning of the book of Romans. Genesis gives us the account of how creation came about and through these genealogies, we see how the earth was populated and why people are like they are today and how God planned to save all who come to him so we can populate the new heavens and the new earth and spend eternity with our Savior. So it was through Shem that the line of Adam's son, Seth, would be perpetuated and that Abram, who became Abraham, would come. It was through Shem that Eber was born from whom the Hebrew people came. And Japheth, 
represents the Gentile peoples. That's most of us here tonight. There's also another important reason for the genealogies. We are a product of our family lines, and the choice is made by those who came before us. It should be our goal to leave behind a legacy others can ride on. I say that on purpose. Maybe you know why. The legacy trail that was built by others <laughs> is a place I can ride my bicycle safely. So what kind of legacy am I planning to leave behind as a path for those who come after me? Val and I want our lives to end well for the glory of God so that our grandkids, kids, kids who decide to check out their family one day, uh, this family line, discover that way back in the 1900s and early 2000s, if the Lord hasn't come by then, Carl and Valerie Dixon loved Jesus and lived godly lives for him. So now we move on to the Tower of Babel. The first sin in human history was Adam and Eve's clear personal choice to do what they wanted rather than what God communicated. And I think Reggie gave us one of the best pictures I've ever heard of that on Sunday. This is the theme of the Bible over and over again. Mankind going its own way rather than following God's ways. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood, Ham, the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. So now, we've already learned about the, where they went. This is how it happened. Genesis 11. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, which is Babylon, really, and settled there. Now, it says eastward because out of the garden they went eastward. Eastward in the Bible often represents moving away from God. Moving away from God. So... Be careful with the word, word settled. Don't settle for a safe life. We were not created to settle in this world. We are created to keep going, keep growing. We're on a journey toward a glorious eternity. Now look at verse 3. They said to each other, the people of that time, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And verse 4, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower. It's called a ziggurat, and we've found lots of examples of it. And some of them are really tall, and they all had gods, especially on the top of them. And so come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. That's a phrase, don't forget it, reaches to the heavens. So that we, they're saying, may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And I could add, like God said we should be. We must be careful we don't fall for the idea that the desire we all have to feel secure can be attained by anything we accomplish during our earthly journey. That, that becomes idolatry. Uh, Tim Keller, not too long before he went to heaven, wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's a really great book. 
one, one sentence from the book. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Just that one sentence alone is worth really thinking about very, very deeply. In their pride, the people wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to become famous, and in their attempt at fame, they became famous for something they would rather have avoided. This is the way pride always deals with us. Pride represents independence, self-reliance, believing in what I can do rather than what God can do through me. Humility represents dependence, God-reliance, believing in what God can do through my submissive obedience. Pride breeds discontent. Humility produces joy and peace and the self-control needed to live a godly life. The people were building a tower, hoping the tower gods would satisfy them. And as it reached to the clouds, they might have imagined that the gods would bless them and they would feel good. They would be full of hope. Full of hope. And by the way, there, when you walked in tonight, you might have seen the cost of the Hope Conference goes up tonight. I say this on purpose because if you've never been to a conference in our church that our that discipleship group put together, believe me, you don't want to miss this one. This man is so great, and I guarantee you that you will be just full of hope because of that conference. Valerie and I signed up right away, and, and if you haven't signed up, you should. I didn't, that's not in my notes, but I, I'm sure that Carl and Sarah will pay me extra for it. So <clears throat> we can't live without hope. But the only hope that will never let us down is hope in God. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole chapter on hope in his great book, Mere Christianity, which was the book that finally convinced me to become a Christian. And this is one of his most uh, well-known quotes. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world something supernatural and eternal. So God will often take away from us what we truly are hoping in so we can see how far east we may have drifted away from God. Verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. <laughs> the Lord came down. It's not just an anthropomorphism, but... Also, a statement of mockery. No matter how high they built the tower, I know it's obvious, but they would never reach God. The picture of God having to come down to even see what they were doing is humorous, but also sad. And remember the phrase, reaches to the heavens. They were building this to reach the heavens. There's a verse about that, about uh, the height of heavens, Isaiah 55, 9, for just as the heavens are higher than the earth, that's, that's true, <laughs> so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
But the reality is God did come down to us. That's the incarnation. That's Jesus. That's Christmas. That's what we're uh, talking about in all the sermons after this one for the rest of the year. Then in verse 6, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this. By the way, if you remember the fall, you have the same verbiage exactly when Adam and Eve fall and, uh, and they're put out of the garden. And so it says, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, God was not jealous about all that they could accomplish without him, no. This is the concern of a loving father who knows his children will ruin their lives if he doesn't stop them from persisting in their disobedience. Both in the book of Hebrews and the book of Proverbs, it says that God disciplines those he loves in the same way a good dad disciplines his son or daughter. Verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they'll not understand each other. Now, this confusion of language causes everything in chapter 10. That's how it all happened. But the confusion then is reversed in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit causes people of different languages to hear the gospel in their own language. So the Holy Spirit comes, it causes a huge ruckus, and uh, people, even the, uh, the Christians that are filled with the Spirit, uh, they're accused of being drunk, actually. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, at that time, this is, this is back in the, where the, how the, this is how the church began. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. It's a reversal of, of the Tower of Babel. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, the rednecks. And yet, we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things God has done. It, the, thing, the wonderful thing was the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension back into heaven. Now, two more verses. Verse 8. So the Lord, it says, scattered them from there over all the earth. That's chapter 10. And they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now the, world, the word Babel means gate of gods, but it also sounds like the word for confused. Babel or Babylon becomes the enemy of God's people and God's ways. We see this throughout Scripture. It is the Babylonians 
who attack Israel, who take Daniel and his friends to their land. It is Babylon that is described by the prophets, especially Isaiah, Ezekiel, and yes, even Jeremiah. And in the Revelation, it is Babylon that is destroyed, representing everything that is against God. The half-built tower is a picture of man's works left unfinished as our short lives end and only what we have done for Christ will last. So now we have a scattered people with no direction and God will choose a man, Abram, who becomes known as Abraham to continue the process of returning mankind back to God. We more than any other peoples, we who believe in Jesus, should be the most hopeful and joyful people on the planet. Our joy comes from our relationship with Jesus and our hope is fired up by the destination of our journey through this life into eternity. Oh, and by the way, we must live it together. One of the worst things that can happen is for Christians to be isolated from one another in any way at all. The world, must, the world should know us as a people, not just that you're the neighbor across the street uh, who goes to church someplace, but they should know us as a people who have lots of other people around us that are like-minded and are excited about it. And I'm sure that on, in our case, on our Friday night home fellowships, which pretty well stops up the whole neighborhood with cars, um, the people know and probably can even, as a matter of fact, we sang some Christmas carols this week. It was awful. <laughs> but it was joyful. <laughs> so our joy comes from our relationship with Jesus, and our hope is fired up by the destination of our journey through this life with each other into eternity. And if we're obeying God and trusting Him for our lives, we should be leaving behind a family legacy of great hope and joy because of Jesus. Let's pray, and then we can worship a bit more with song. Father, I just thank you for your whole Bible, and it's such a, a joy to be able to take which is even difficult to read in English and show the story of how you have put everything together. And Father, it, it helps all of us, I'm sure, to know that even in this messed up world we're in right now in a very specific ways, that it's not hopeless and that you have the boundaries for the nations already set and you already know what's going to happen. I know that there are men... Uh, and others around the world today that think they're controlling things. But I also know you are, and I can't say I understand everything. I don't. But I can pray and trust and know that you have a plan, and Jesus is coming again that could be at any moment, and that in the end we are going to be blessed beyond anything that we could even remotely imagine today. Thank you for the hope that you have given us in Jesus' name.
who is the Messiah and who is our Lord. Amen. Amen.